Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have a very exciting founder today. We're going to be talking a lot about logistics uh, and freight and, uh, you know, about why companies like Coca-Cola and others, you know, they need actually startups to really thrive. So, you know, in this case, we're going to be talking going from corporate to the venture world and beyond. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Anshu Prasad. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. Great to be with you. So you were born in India, grew up in Calcutta, and then you came to New York City at nine years of age. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was, how was life growing up? Life was great. Yeah, I'm uh, one of three kids. Uh, my, my family, you know, we had a, a great early part of my life in India. And then we, when we decided to emigrate to the States, I, I grew up in Queens. We moved to Flushing, New York, which is the home of the New York Mets. And yet I became a Yankee fan in the 80s, which is a terrible time to be a Yankee fan. So I've been a, um, I've been a lifelong New Yorker, more or less. And, uh, and I've really enjoyed the entrepreneurial journey, which is kind of like the immigrant's journey. There's a lot of, you got to just figure it out. Um, and uh, lots of very helpful people that come assist you along the way and had that in life too, from teachers, the wonderful schools that have had a chance to attend. Uh, friends that have become lifelong friends. Yeah, that's that's memory lane, man. Nice. Now, uh, how was like coming to New York? Obviously, different culture, different everything. You know, how was how was adjusting to New York City? We we had uh, some family that had emigrated um, some years prior, and even with their stories and their photographs, it didn't quite prepare you for what's showing up in New York. So we we landed in December at JFK, and you know, it was the first time I'd seen snow or ice. We weren't prepared for the weather, um, and yet you just figured it out, right? People, again, were very helpful, pretty significant error in judgment, looking for the warmest thing we could find before I started going to school in January. Uh, and we found a sweater, bright red, that came with extra, you know, what looked like arms to us, but were in retrospect leg warmers. So I went to school with the warmest clothes I could find. And I was probably wearing clothes that weren't meant for me. Um, but, uh, you know, aside from a couple of stumbles along the way, uh, no, it was, it was a big adjustment, but one that we were familiar with. I mean, one of the benefits I had was I'd gone to English medium schools, English speaking schools. So yes, of course there were some nuances to, to language and, and, uh, and the, and the like, but I didn't have some of the challenges that other immigrants have in that I spoke English. Um, and I was able to acculturate, um, or at least join my classes and, and follow along more quickly. So you ended up in Cornell, so not far away. Uh, but uh, but basically, why biochemistry? What what got you into biochemistry? Yeah. So my dad, before we immigrated years back, had been an organic chemistry professor. It's the thing that he talked about. He looked back on his life that he really loved doing. He loved being a teacher, and I wanted to be potentially an academic in the in the science. I loved the sciences. I loved various things that um, you know. I had a chance to study through high school. A wonderful high school experience here in New York. And and I wanted to pursue biochemistry. I just found the subjects really interesting. I dabbled with a bunch of different ideas in the first couple of years of college, and then biochemistry stuck. So that that's what I wanted to do post grad. I wanted to. I looked at a handful of labs and graduate programs, and I got some advice from some of the, you know, seniors who I'd been uh, working with in labs to say, you know, this is a 
interesting time. Some, some of us are contemplating jumping off the PhD bandwagon and pursuing startups. Um, and it was just this time in the late 90s where a lot of internet technologies were coming online and people just had this energy around starting companies in biotechnology, but also in general, just in starting companies. And I got caught up in that. So uh, while I did study biochemistry, I very more, much more actively pursued uh, startups just as a way to kind of really accelerate my learning. Now, in your case, you know, you, you, it's interesting because you've been uh, with companies, you know, like for quite a while, you know, either with a startup or with AT Kearney. I mean, what do you think caused you to stay put, you know, for so long with, with these different companies? You know, I think one of the things that, you know, I learned also just from watching my dad and others growing up was um, really taking ownership of a problem, right? Just um, being part of figuring things out, not just intellectually, but just making the actual solution work. So um, at Tigris, which is the startup I joined um, in the late 90s, there was a lot to figure out. But as we worked the problem, there was always another interesting problem on the other side. And there were people involved. And if you could actually make things work better, um, you could grow the company, you could expand into different, you know, I had a chance to go to London early on in my career and open an office. Uh, it just, as interesting opportunities presented themselves, they weren't just intellectual challenges. They were, they required you bringing all of the tools that you could muster to bear to solve them, including execute and deliver a result. So that's kind of taking an ownership for the outcome was has always been important to me um, and being sort of able to deliver on the on the promise or the expectations to others so that's why I mean I think you know the team that I had a chance to build and, and grow at Carney I continue to stay close to some of them are, have come and joined me to kind of work on leaf but others have continued to be supporters and and friends and advisors from from you know the sidelines. Um, it's it's at the end of the day doing meaningful work with people you respect and can learn from, and you know when that means just rolling up your sleeves and digging into the problem. You know I've had I've been fortunate to have lots of opportunities to do that. Now let's talk about problems. So on AT Kearney, you know when it comes to um, to doing consulting work, you know like uh, you definitely develop that uh, understanding on how to tackle problems. So in your case, you know. This gives you the exposure to, to the world of fright. So how was tackling problems? What did you learn about tackling problems? And then also what were some of the issues that you were encountering in the fright segment? Yeah, so even before Carney, um, you know, some of the work that we did at Tigris was uh, focused on freight and logistics. And so I went to Carney to, to, to help build out an analytical practice, but an analytical practice focused in large part on supply chain and logistics. That tended to be my area of focus. And so the kinds of problems I'd seen before at Kearney, but also through my time at Kearney, showed me a couple of things. One is, this is a big deal, right? So to companies in consumer packaged goods and retail, um, freight is oftentimes the second or third largest expenditure. It's one where, you know, getting the budget wrong or getting service wrong has significant long-term impact. Um, and yet, unlike some of the other areas in the in their business, they just don't have very good data. They don't have very good tools to do anything other than react. And so what I learned also was the operational burden that it takes to actually manage freight, um, both for buyers and sellers. I had the chance to work on the other side of the table with trucking companies as well as with third-party logistics firms and brokerages. Um, 
this is a very hard problem. And it rhymes in other geographies. I had the chance to do some of this work in, in Asia, in Europe, in Latin America. There's patterns to how freight is bought and sold that have persisted for a long time that in, involve a lot of people doing fairly tactical transactional work. And yet it's a big deal uh, and needs to be sort of respected for the complexity of the job. I mean, these are very hardworking, very smart people, um, but their talents are largely getting um, up consumed in tactical management. They have a lot more to contribute. So those were the, the core, core observations, the operational intensity, but also just this is a problem that really matters. Now, in your case, I mean, being for 10 years with Carney, I mean, at what point do you realize, hey, you know what? I, I think it's time for me to really explore this farther and, and go at it on my own. You know, I think it, it really goes back to what you asked me before, um, which is, you know, knowing that there is a core problem that I can take ownership of. You know, after several years of, of consulting and, you know, I had a chance to work with wonderful clients, but also a tremendous set of colleagues, you know, there was a rhythm to the work that I was doing that I was very familiar with. And yet there was a problem that kept gnawing at me that, you know, we were still kind of going through the same processes that we'd been following for well over 10 years at that point um, and expecting a different outcome sometimes. And that just didn't seem rational. So, you know, the inertia uh, that some of the, our customers have to say, look, this is how this is done. You guys, frankly, taught us how to do this. We're going to do it again and again. And, you know, hopefully it works better next time was something that gnawed at me. And um, I really wanted to think about and for a while was focused on, is there a different way to rethink the problem? And I discussed it amongst my colleagues at Carney too, who obviously work in multiple areas beyond freight and, you know, the buying and selling of transportation. And, you know, I, I really felt that the idea of rethinking the problem, you know, perhaps we were missing the forest for the trees was something that a, I'd done my legwork in, but B, I felt pretty committed to a different approach being taken. So no better way that I could think of was then to uh, step back and say, look, I'm going to commit to doing this differently. And and before I did that for myself and my family, it was really important for me to kind of go out and talk to some of these people who I had worked with or worked for and kind of sound them out in terms of did what I was thinking about make sense to them? Would they try it? Would they work with me? Uh, would they even join me on the effort and kind of help building this company? And when I, when that came back overwhelmingly positive, um, I had the sort of the impetus I needed to go do something different. So what were the next steps? Uh, frankly, you know, to be a real student of the process. I'd never been part of a venture-skilled business before. Some of my friends had kind of gone down that journey. So, of course, I started with them to ask them sort of what did they learn? What would they have done differently now with a couple of years of hindsight that they could benefit from? Um, and, you know, much of the same way that I was going back out to people that I had worked with or I respected and I wanted to understand their point of view, I started talking to the people that my friends, uh, recommended I speak with just to learn. Um, so the first step really was to try to get a, co a comprehensive understanding of what it takes, not just to kind of build the company, but to get the support, enlist the support you need, whether it's investors, um, critical early employees, how you convince a customer. I mean, you're talking to, household name brand companies that have been moving freight around this country for decades, and you're asking them to do something different, how does that conversation go? So I actually put my list together of 20 or 30 conversations with former clients, people I'd had dialogue with to say, I'm going to do this. Would you be willing 
to try something completely different. And and that, I did my homework there. That was the first step. Now, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Leaf Logistics? So the business model was very much a, a data and technology-enabled platform business. And that means for us that we don't have necessarily a product that everyone in the world just needs to absolutely consume. It's We don't sell the iPhone, but we are essentially creating the app store. We're creating a basis on which trucking companies that have sold trucking capacity for a long time can sell their trucking capacity at a higher margin with better lifestyle as well as pay for their drivers. We're selling on that same platform the ability for companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle to buy transportation that's higher reliability and lower cost. So it's really about facilitating the buying and selling of transportation differently. But the way that we do it also allows us to create unique data that can be used to really plan freight and create new products like insurance products and payment products and lending products that frankly can't be created in today's industry because it's so transactional, because you don't have the kinds of data sets that insurers and lenders really need to comfortably and confidently engage in this industry in the way that they can through LEAF. So it's, it's we are really a platform business model. Now, in this case, for you guys, at what point do you realize that you got product market fit and you've gone from zero to one? You know, um, the first time that that light bulb went off was, I mean, pretty early in the journey. When we go to, you know, household companies and ask them for all the data that we need to kind of make our models run, that's a very strange and unusual ask, right? So uh, maybe if you were doing a massive consulting project for them, you might have these you know, broad data requests and, you know, they've already agreed to do the project with you, they'll share. But generally speaking, if you're in the transportation industry, asking for the data that we asked for was an unusual ask. But when we saw uh, multiple companies say, absolutely, we'll give you that data uh, and, and actually provide it, you know, without much more than us just kind of showing them the beta version of our technology, um, we knew that there was an unmet need. That was the first big indication that no, there's some latent demand here for something different, something new. When we knew we had product market fit was when we used that demand, ran it through our analytics and sold these customers something that they'd never had before, which was a way to just manage a portion of their spend with very high predictability using a digital contract that we introduced to the world. When that started to work, and frankly, we were, you know, yes, we had bottled it. We had sort of done our math and analysis off to the side. But when it started to work and deliver better service at lower cost while still delivering margin to the suppliers that they hadn't seen before, then we knew. Then we knew that we had to kind of really think about the go-to-market and the business model, to your point before, to really bring this capability to other companies and start to step towards our mission. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition, 
So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, it's interesting here because you would think that the larger companies, you know, they could do this, you know, internally like Coca-Cola. So why would they need a startup to really help them out? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is a lesson we learned um, from working with these companies and working at some of these companies, some of us. You know, Coca-Cola has a lot on its plate. <laughs> um, there's a lot to do to manufacture their products and get it to customers to operate a big, large, unwieldy organization. Oh, by the way, and deal with competition, their investors and the like. Um, Coca-Cola's supply chain and the transportation that kind of underpins it is built to produce, you know, Coca-Cola and send it to its customers. Unfortunately for Coca-Cola, what the truck that picks up that fizzy water and then delivers it to the customer does before picking up the fizzy water and what it does after dropping off the goods at, say, a Walmart, is incredibly important to Coca-Cola if they want to have reliable service and lower costs. It's just that Coca-Cola has no needs to do anything about it, right? They have enough on their plate. Just running their supply chain, executing everything, winning in the market is a Herculean effort at Coca-Cola. But the trucking that they utilize to do it basically sits in a much larger network. We call it the grid. We, you know, the, the larger grid of transportation capacity that Coca-Cola needs to tap into to do the, the work it needs to do to kind of get its uh, products onto the shelf is not something that Coca-Cola can fully appreciate. Even with a few hundred million dollars of trucking that they buy, they're still a very small part of the overall industry. And on an operational practical level, what that truck does before and what the truck does after Coca-Cola's job is incredibly important, maybe existentially important to the trucking company. And so a startup like us who can kind of sit above the phrase, neither Coca-Cola nor the trucking company, but can use data to make things better for Coke and for the trucking company, play air traffic controller, if you will, across the grid. That is a benefit to both Coke and to its suppliers. It's just by themselves, no one unilaterally disarms, right? Coca-Cola starting to, you know, get out of the business of making its unique products and now all of a sudden be this um, agnostic sort of data connector of all transportation, just not anywhere close to their core mission, it is ours. We, we, As a startup, we've earned the right to focus on a specific problem we think we have a different point of view and perspective on, and we can bring all of our skills and talents and experience to bear on that specific problem to the benefit of our customers. That ability to focus on what we're focused on, let's put it this way, Coca-Cola focused on something that makes them pretty unique and very successful and did it brilliantly we have the luxury to focus on something different. Got it. Now, for you guys, you've raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised to date? A little over $60 million through uh, a couple of rounds. 
And how the, how has the experience or I guess the expectations from investors shifted from one round to another? By and large, it hasn't shifted that dramatically. I think um, from the earliest investors that we engaged to our Series B investors, our Series B closed in, in January of this year, um, they knew that the problem we're trying to tackle is complex, but addressing it successfully is a massive opportunity. It's a you know it's a chance to build truly a generational company, and you know they've seen that happen in their portfolios. We have the benefit of working with some very experienced investors who've invested across sectors, but they've been parts of building truly you know iconic generational companies, and so therefore their expectations have been largely aligned with. A pretty big mission. Um, that said, um, yeah, absolutely. As we've kind of matured through different stages of the company, there are different sort of signs of health and progress. And our investors have been really helpful, not just to sort of say, here's what we think we need to see at this stage, but here's what the next stage and the stage after that typically looks like for companies that are on a trajectory like yours. Um, it's, it's this sort of trick of um, focusing on the problem that we need to solve meaningfully differently now but still kind of thinking a little bit ahead, peering around corners. And in some ways, our investors are, you know, they're experts having seen those types of journeys, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times themselves. They're people that we, you know, we'd look for for some guidance from. Um, they've been really great partners. Now, one thing that was very interesting here, you know, to me is that right before the pandemic, you decide on remote first. How lucky is that? You know, it's uh, it seemed a little silly. Uh, to even some of our investors, they asked us some pretty hard questions. It looks like we've got this sort of pattern. Like we see a lot of companies, they all huddle together in some, you know, dingy room or in a garage somewhere and they produce brilliance. And where's your garage? What do you mean remote? Like, why does this make sense? And um, yeah, I got to say on two levels, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. One, it was absolutely necessary for the business we wanted to build. This is not a business that done right. It needs thousands and thousands of people, but it needs... Uh, few very, very strong, very functionally, you know, adept people, you know, people bringing, quote unquote, their superpowers to bear on this problem. But we need those people fully engaged. And if they sit on, you know, Mars, as long as they've got strong bandwidth, we don't care, right? Like they need, we need them to be fully plugged into this problem, fully invested in kind of, you know, there's a, there are folks on this team that, um, that happen to be, you know, PhD level data scientists, but their, their dad drove a, truck you know when they were in high school and in college and so they're personally invested in using their specific talents which are in very short supply and in high demand to solve this problem do i care where they live like as long as they're fully in so we were you know remote first allowed us to really focus on getting those great people that could make a big difference but of course it also built scaffolding and infrastructure for when everyone had to be remote so it wasn't much of a shock for us when um, you know, we had to, <laughs> in the pandemic, our first gathering as a team was basically in a big wedding tent, you know, um, a friend of ours who has, you know, uh, a venue that he uses for, um, weddings when, you know, those were allowed, which was not the case in the pandemic, had this big tent sitting on his property and we were able to meet eight or 10 of us, you know, 12 or 15 feet apart kind of shouting at each other from different tables, but because we built the scaffolding, these people had worked asynchronously for all their time at leave. They understood what they were talking about. And we could have very productive conversations, um, even if that meant we only got together once every six months at the time in, in terms of physical interaction. So, no, it, um, 
it was, uh, I, I remind some of our early investors about sort of the skepticism they had about uh, building a remote first culture. It definitely served us in good stead the last couple of years. And how do you go about building a culture, you know, that is remote? I mean, obviously, as you were saying, now you're not going to have those moments of being, you know, like behind the trenches together. And so how do you make sure that people are still in tune, in sync with each other and that you have that uh, camaraderie to a certain degree, you know, going on? You know, it's uh, there's the uh, uh, serendipitous kind of um, what what used to be water cooler conversations. You know, the fact that you know what's going on with your colleagues' kids and those types of things became hard to do when we were all remote. You know, not just in the pandemic but before. So we made time for serendipity. Like we made time for just social interactions when we started. When it was just a handful of us, and we were you know on the West Coast or in Europe or and kind of working the same problem. In, on, on very different hours, and of course, in the early days, we're, we seem to be all working all, at all hours. But, but it you know it helped to, to sometimes engage on sort of the human part of you know this this group of people that actually likes to work together. Because the second part of remote working, particularly at this early stage of startup life, uh, was also essential. You needed to to have the space and the trust to debate meaty issues. And yes, you know when it was a handful of us. We could jump on a plane and we could, you know, crash it uh, in my apartment and, and work uh, the problem together for a few days. But that soon became unwieldy. Um, and yet we still needed to have that culture of trust enough and confidence in each other and in our point of view to go debate things, to frankly argue over points that we cared about. And so we created space for that, even asynchronously, to to essentially write down. I mean, one of the things that we borrowed from Amazon and others was you know, just getting clarity of thought down on paper. If you had a point of view and you wanted to do something that, you know, we weren't doing as a company yet, do the work to write it down, communicate it to us in prose. We will all do you the respect of reading that point of view, and then we will have a debate. But it'll be an informed debate. And so we started to figure out how to not just continue to care about each other's people. Some of us had worked together in the past, so we had a little bit of shared history. But for the others, we wanted to have that sort of camaraderie, which super important given sort of the, the lonely slog that a startup sometimes feels like, but it also helped build that scaffolding to fight over stuff that we cared about because we got to better outcomes faster. Now, in terms of like, imagine that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Leave Logistics is fully realized. What does that world look like? So sub today, something like a third of trucking capacity goes wasted in this country when a truck driver doesn't doesn't drive with the cargo in the back. He's not getting paid. There's so many sort of friction points and pain points in this industry. I think if tomorrow we could, you know, wake up to an, uh, a new transportation industry, we would be meeting the demand that we need met, you know, all the fizzy water and Tylenol and all the other things that products that need to be on the shelves that unfortunately the last 18, 24 months, several of us experience is not often on the shelves when we need it. Transportation becomes reliable at, and the demand gets met at something like 80 to 90% of the today's capacity. A significant portion of those empty miles get eliminated. The, the tax that you and I and everybody else pays for those wasteful emissions, the fact that truck drivers get paid something like half of what they would get paid if they were fleet drivers, if they had actually salaried employees as opposed to transactionally getting pushed from point A to B, 
those types of ills would be worn out of our system. And yes, people's jobs would change. There would be fundamental shifts in a lot of the work that's done by millions of white collar workers as well as truck drivers today. But the end result would be a transportation grid that actually works efficiently with a lot fewer emissions, a lot less waste, with real wages uh, and wage increases for truck drivers, which we really haven't had for decades in our country. Those structural problems would get addressed. And then we could start building the scaffolding, the infrastructure, the data that we'll need for truly transformative technology like autonomous and other technologies like hydrogen or electrification to be brought to this industry. Today, given the fragmented, very transactional nature, it's really hard for big transformative technologies to take root. But once you've kind of connected, tomorrow morning we wake up, these things are actually interconnected. Then you can start to make a real dent in the way this industry operates. So it starts to resemble other big parts of our economy and not this sort of what seems like a vestige of decades past. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment where you were still at Kearney and, and you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self. Imagine, imagine what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self before starting a company and why, given what you know now? You know, one of the things I told myself that, that at the time when I was, you know, and my colleagues at Carney were incredibly helpful um, in kind of both engaging with the thought process, but also in kind of giving me the space and the room to kind of really explore the idea. What, what, the thing that I kept going back to, and I think going back to your earlier question, was I really wanted to throw myself in the deep end of the pool again. I wanted to learn and I wanted to accelerate that sort of learning curve. Um, and and the best thing that I could think of now in retrospect is the people who help you do that the best are the people who jump in that boat with you, the people who want to kind of work the problem with you. And they could be you know, early you know colleagues, but they could also be investors. They could also be some of your biggest skeptics and critics. They really want to work on the problem. So... I would say to that younger version of myself, uh, you, you really want to study the problem and, and love the problem to be committed to, to solving it over time. And, um, you know, I, I got that appreciation for the problem and what it means and what it could mean for people, right? It wasn't like this intellectual exercise of saying, hey, you know, we did the math model. It kind of works. At the end of the day, if you aren't able to get the right people and resources marshaled to go change that problem and able to change the, the hearts and minds of the folks who need to do something different today than they did yesterday to, to actually make the change stick, this is all academic. So um, I, I would say it's about that focus on people. It's obviously a critical part to any startup, but to your point earlier about culture, you got to figure out what kind of company you want to be. In the rear view mirror, um, you know, 10 years from now, when we're looking back and, and really happy and successful, at the end of the day, it'll be the people we did that with. I think that'll matter the most. Absolutely. So for the people that are listening, Anshu, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You can certainly find me on Twitter. I'm not that active. Uh, social media is starting to become a little bit of a distraction. So I'm trying to tamp that down. But you can always reach me at anshu.prasad at lethalogistics.com. Amazing. Well, Anshu, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you. I appreciate it, Alejandro. Great talking to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help 
whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.